pretty good, Chris. Um, not much observing, but uh, I got I have some parts on the way. <clears throat> excuse me to retrofit my Tasco seventy six TE, very old telescope with some mm. modern stuff. So I'll I'll share a little bit of that with you, and then uh, you know you and I did a little package exchange of some gear. So excited for mm-hmm. some of that, and uh, yeah, yeah. How was your yeah. week? Yeah, uh, kind of the same. It's sort of been, uh, you know, uh, not the best weather here and uh, was finishing up my class this week and uh, been busy with work and uh, also, uh, yeah, got to gotta finish up an article for the journal. So uh, have, have a few things on the go. So um, yeah, and, and again, the weather hasn't been the best. It's been, it's actually been pretty cold and cloudy, like, uh, you know, in and around like minus five Celsius uh, with highs of only maybe three or four degrees Celsius at the most. So the snow's gone, which is great, but, uh, but it's not quite um, good enough weather for, for observing right now here, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. The cloud definitely kept me away. I was able to get out last night for, for a short view. Um, There was a little bit of high level cloud. Uh, The moon was either full or very near full. But I took out yeah. the little mini Borg 50 millimeter um, because to me, that's kind of what that telescope is almost ideal for uh, is those types of conditions where, you know, it's probably marginal at best. Um, you may not want to go through the hassle of dragging out, you know, your bigger, heavier stuff that maybe involves multiple trips. Um, so I just took yeah. out, yeah, the little telescope in one hand with, you know, mount tripod. Um, I had the 24 millimeter panoptic in it, which gives, you know, six about six degree field of view. Um, so for example, like the belt of Orion, the, the three prominent stars um, took up about 40% of the field of view. So, you know, super wide. So that was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also cool. played around with a, um, I have a, a little Nikon zoom, which is very small, very light. It, you know, it, it's probably one of the most ideal grab and go eyepieces as well. Uh, the focal range on that is nine millimeter to 21 millimeter. And uh, it worked quite well in the little board. Um, it only gave maybe two and a half degree field of view. Um, it's much more narrow than the, the panoptic. But, um, you know, the, the ease to quickly zoom through that whole focal range was, was nice. It was, uh, it was fun. So I, I was maybe only out for a half an hour just playing around, not really doing any serious observing. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I was happy to get uh, the, the package that... Uh, that you left for me and uh, pick that up. And so I now also have a mini Borg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll have to do some mini Borg comparisons along, along the way. Yeah. 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 So I've always, I've always wanted one. And then uh, you kind of jumped on, on getting one of these before I did. And, uh, and then sort of as, as a, as a very, uh, great byproduct of that. You ended up with some extra parts, which which are basically parts enough for me to get uh, going with my own mini Borg uh, setup. So that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think your primary purpose is to use it as a finder with your uh, Takahashi 100. Um, but I think mm-hmm. you like you know I think you'll find a little more uh, utility for it as well as kind of a grab and go quick telescope. Um, it, it certainly has its place in my heart, <laughs> probably be more impressive under a dark sky than in the city, but you know, it's still, like I say for last night, those types of situations, um, it's almost like a pair of binoculars, you know, in terms of ease, 
but you get all of the quality of a telescope and also the ability to, you know, change eyepieces and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, I think it's a little, a little bit better, uh, or in my opinion, anyway, I prefer it a little bit more than, than a pair of binoculars. Um, so I, you know, it's a good little telescope. Yeah. And so what these are is the, these are 50 millimeter telescopes um, from, from the company called Borg, which is a division of, uh, I think it's, uh, what's it, Tommy Tech or Tomiko or something like that over in Japan. And uh, anyhow, they're, they're actually like full on little telescopes with proper lenses and um, more than just like a, like a finder scope really capable of doing um, two times the magnification of uh, the size of the aperture. So capable of, of getting up to uh, about hundred power um, if you had a 2.5 millimeter uh, type uh, eyepiece in them. And, and they're, they're, uh, they're unique. I mean, there's, there's really nothing else quite like them out there for a couple of reasons. So one, there are finder scopes you can get that are around like F4 that are cemented doublets, but they're really like quote unquote finder scope quality. And I have one of those and it's a really good one, um, but mine is brass and it's extremely heavy. So it's actually almost as heavy as my 60 millimeter Takahashi. So you're, you're really, uh, you know, only going down in size, not down in weight with many of these. And there's other ones out there that are, that are similar, um, sort of newer kind of slightly fancier versions of, of the one like I have. Um, and uh, sort of, unfortunately, they're, they're all like probably a little too fast. So you're not really able to use that much power on them. Um, and I, I've looked through them and they're fine, but there's two things that kind of made me not want to get one of, one of these other ones. And that is that they're heavy. So they all weigh about two pounds or so by the time you get them mounted up. And the Borg minis weigh, what, like three quarters of, is it 0.75 pounds? Yeah, like I've that. never weighed it, but it's exceptionally light. Like it, you don't even yeah. know you have it in your hand. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really, really, it's lighter than, it's lighter than most two inch eyepieces. It, it's about the weight of, of a regular eyepiece. So that's, that's really, really light for a little telescope. And then um, the other is it's a little bit easier to mount. So in the standard configuration, it has, this weird kind of almost looks like the top of a, I'm looking at a, at an Advil bottle, almost looks like the top of an Advil bottle kind of screwed onto the, the bottom of the tube. And then that has a threaded hole and that accepts um, just regular tripod adapters. So I just, you know, put on my regular tripod adapter and it goes right on a tripod, no like messing around or trying to find weird adapters or anything like that. So um, it's very configurable. And then it also, and I haven't tried this yet, this is what I'm going to do today, is it should also just slide into a standard um, 8x50 or 10x50 finder scope bracket, which I have already. Um, so that, that really is pretty magical. And, uh, and then, of course, you can, you can put your own diagonal and eyepieces in. And in fact, it will not only take one and a quarter inch diagonals um, with the right adapter, like, like you were kind enough to... Uh, uh, to provide, provide me as part of this package that, that we're that we're working the deal out on, is uh, is you can use uh, two inch eyepieces as well. Though though I understand uh, some may may or may not uh, as easily come to focus. Yeah, you'll have to play around a little bit with that. Um, 
like I found my Nagler was not able to focus uh, with the standard OTA. I had to mess around, which is, you know, one of the neat things of Borg is the modularity. So you can buy different sized spacers and, you know, create whatever focal length you need. Um, so I'll be curious to see if that works for you. But I was also interested that you were able to get your Lumicon diagonal um, to, to go into that little adapter because my uh, yeah. Bader two inch doesn't fit in there. Like the, the nose is too long and it starts to make contact with the OTA oh. barrel and, and it won't insert all of the way. So that's pretty cool that yours fits in like Oh, that. really? Yeah, that's why I do like those Lumicons. And I, I spent a, a bit of money on them last year when they were, they were stopped, uh, they stopped making them. I do need to get um, one of them modified. So I have, I have one, it's now kind of lived past its life, I think 16 or 18 years or whatever it is, I've had it. And I've had it out in a lot of pretty bad conditions. And, uh, you know, I, I observe, you know, the, these are going out into the field and it looks like a diagonal that has spent uh, much of the past 20 years um, in cold and, and sometimes extreme uh, environments from uh, minus 40 degrees Celsius to um, very dewy uh, four degree nights to really hot uh, plus 40 degree evenings. And yeah, it's, it's, I think just lived out its life. I mean, if, if I can say that, that it's just starting to show it's, it's wear and it, and it has that many uh, miles and miles and miles on it. It's been all over, you know, uh, North America with me. Um, you know, I think that's a ring endorsement. So I was, I'm kind of sad that they're, they're either not making them or they're, they're more or less out of production now, but, uh, but they are what they are, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then also included a, a diagonal in there, like you mentioned, uh, or maybe that was before the podcast we were talking, um, the Takahashi inch and a quarter yeah. prism, as well as the, uh, 25 millimeter Takahashi Kellner for your web project. Yeah. Um, so I was excited. Uh, I, I've always wanted to get one of these 1.25 um, prism diagonals uh, by Takahashi. And uh, yeah, they've been, it's been at the top of my list to, to get one for a long time. You end up with kind of like a spare. So I'm, I'm buying that off you. Um, and yeah, I was really surprised for some reason, I, I thought it was going to be a little dinged up or something. I, I, I forget why I thought that, but uh, you, you get a lot of gear. And I think maybe I'd mix this up with something else, but it looks absolutely 100% like new. So I'm really excited for that. So one, that is an extremely light diagonal that can be used in the Borg, sort of in a way coincidental. Um, but I mostly wanted to get it for the times where I do just want to use one and a quarter uh, eyepieces, of which I have quite a few. And uh, there are situations I'm finding, you know, as I do more and more observing that, uh, that I do just want to have the one and a quarter inch and, and don't want to mess around with, uh, with the two inch size uh, format. There, there's just like a, like a lot of planetary observing that I do, especially when I go to the, uh, to the scope setup with the, with the Borg as the finder scope, then uh, that will come in super handy to have, uh, you know, whatever it is, a six plus degree field of view in the finder and then uh, and then it won't matter as much if I'm not able to uh, drop down to a super low wide field in the in the main scope so a uh, bit of a method to the madness there yeah yeah what I plan on doing is uh, when we go to the dark skies is use my um, sky T or sky duo or whatever the heck it is mount that you, you can dual mount telescopes you know one on the right one on the left 
Um, so I'll have my, you know, larger refractor on the right, and then I'll have the, the mini Borg on the left and it'll, you know, the Borg will serve uh, a purpose of wide field. And then the, uh, the bigger refractor will, you know, provide a little more light gathering abilities. And I think that'll be a neat combo. Um, cause sometimes, you know, when you're out there, you, you kind of want both, but it's a pain sometimes to go yeah. back and forth between the wide field and the, you know, high magnification stuff. So. Um, just having them both there at the same time is, uh, is kind of a nice luxury. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Yeah, that should be pretty good. Um, I also want to use my, I bought one of those TS flats uh, a couple of years ago, which are a, a visual field flattener. And I want to see if I can get that to work. I, sh- I think I should be able to get it work. I see somebody else who has one of the, uh, one of the small Borgs. They have the 55 millimeter, uh, 250 millimeter focal length uh, version of this. And they've been able to get that to work in there. But I think essentially at that point, I'd be screwing the um, uh, Borg objective onto a helical, onto the TS flat, onto the diagonal. (laughs) 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 So so it'd be kind of a funny setup, but, uh, but I I think it should work. Um, I think I should be able to get that to to work. Uh, I'm not sure how, how I would mount that, but it it might mount in the mounting uh, finder scope bracket. So um, th- there's some futzing around, uh, that can be done, but, uh, but, you know, last, not last year, but I guess over, over the past several years, I've compared my seven by 35 binoculars with my 60 millimeter tack quite a bit. And, you know, the tack still nudges it out quite, quite well at, uh, at low powers. So the binoculars give about a 9.2 degree field of view. The tack will give about a seven and a half degree true field of view. Um, but this 50 millimeter, if I can kind of get it working properly, I think I can get about 10 and a half or so degree true field. Um, and that would be really cool if I can kind of get that working uh, well, the way, the way that I want it. But, uh, but regardless, even if it doesn't do that, um, I think just having such a really lightweight finder scope on the main scope is, uh, is something uh, that's going to be really useful for me. Yeah. And, and in comparison to the seven by 35s, um, the seven by 35s, you lose a bit of the edge, you know, it gets soft, uh, at least any seven by 35s I've looked through that are wide field, the edges start to get soft. Whereas with this little 50 millimeter Borg, um, it's not super crisp right till the edge, but the breakdown or the, uh, the diminishing quality is far less than the binoculars. So the actual entire field is far more usable and, and prettier, you know, it just, it's nicer. There's less aberration in it. So you know, yet another reason for the, the 50 millimeter over some binos. Um, not to say that binos don't have a place, but, um, you know, this 50 millimeter is, is something special. It'll, it'll be a really nice telescope. Yeah. 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 I'm pretty excited for it. It's, it's sort of a strange little thing to get. Um, it, I think it looks pretty cool. You, you're free to tweet out the photo I sent you earlier today of, of my very elaborate fit. I don't know that that works. Um, <laughs> I think, I think, I think that might not actually work in, in practice, but my, I do have a, and this is the uh, diagonal that I use most is a very short focal length, two inch diagonal, like the standard one that I, I use in all my other gear is, uh, is very short optical path so that it, you know, and I bought it so that it would come to focus in, in, uh, in equipment like this, like my other board telescope, in fact, is right. why I bought it. So I, it might actually work there. So we'll, we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens. That would be pretty cool. So I have, I plan to actually use it with, I have a, a 30 millimeter. Uh, it's about a 75 degree 
field of UI piece. And if if that one will come to focus in this setup, then uh, I'll probably get the Mass Yama 32 um, because that's almost identical to my old uh, 30 millimeter. And uh, my old 30 millimeter, I love, and I use it tons and tons and tons. And again, it's got so many miles on it and, uh, and so much uh, wear and tear that uh, considering the Mass Yama is, is an updated new version with brand new coatings, I, I think it might be time to, to get a new uh, 30 odd millimeter in my, uh, in my eyepiece case anyway. So that that's probably where I'll go, but uh, have, have some work to get to that point and uh, should be some, some fun this spring messing around with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a neat little project. I'm, I'm excited that uh, we both have them because, you know, I think you'll probably have some different applications for yours and it might yeah. inspire me or, or give me some ideas for different applications for mine as well. So um, I think it's cool that we both have uh, yeah. have them to work on and, you know, we can share notes. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I'm excited about that too. Yeah. I just think, I just think it's really cool. And I think, uh, I think all told this, this is like about a, a 250 odd American dollar kind of setup and you have to buy them used. They don't make them new anymore. I think, but they're recently just out of production. Yeah. Yeah. They, I don't what their production run was, but you're right. You can't buy them new anymore. Uh, the closest that they have, I think right now is a 50 millimeter or maybe it's a 55 millimeter, but it's a, a fluoride. Objective. It's 55. Yeah. It's supposed but to be really very nice. expensive. Yeah. It's like a thousand dollars Canadian, I think, or, or maybe even more. Um, so more, these little, yeah. yeah, these little mini Borgs show up on the used market sometimes. And, uh, you know, I think they're a great value, um, you know, especially around that $200 mark is, yeah. is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, because you you'll really get the uh, the wide field, and I, I just like the the flexibility of having this sort of really really small spotting scope capability uh, mixed in with the uh, the finder scope capability, which is something I was really excited for with my um, let's see with with my University Optics brass one that I bought years and years ago, but I never was able to realize it just because um, the quality of an F four uh, cement doublet while really good um, just not quite what you want it to be for that standalone spotter and then as well um, it was just so heavy and uh, lacked the flexibility to to really um, use many other eyepieces with it like you you sort of had to pick and choose what eyepieces would actually work with it through a lot of experimentation and there there wasn't uh, like any really good options uh you could get like a few different eyepieces to work with it but it wasn't like having kind of a standalone little telescope like uh, like i think this can be yeah yeah for sure for sure so maybe no, we'll awesome. just jump jump in the notes here for a second because because phil had uh had a good question about finder scopes since we're kind of heading in that direction yeah yeah that's uh i think that's a good segue um so phil from the uk wrote us uh and and uh, also an audio message um but uh let's see here he said uh, there are several types of finders uh you know for example there's zero power telrads there's red dots straight throughs right angles right angle correct image uh, um does the type of telescope or object make one type of finder more suited compared to the others um, so what you, do you did think, really, Chris? I gotta say, you did really good reading my crappy notes that I made on the fly <laughs> from that audio. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, that may not be a verbatim quote. Uh, I, you know, I think Chris translated the audio and then I'm translating Chris's message. <laughs> <laughs> that was, you did good. That's good. So what do you think, Chris? Uh, what, what is your thoughts on, you know, what, what, you know, maybe a little bit of an overview of the differences of, of these finders and then application? Yeah. Yeah, so, so there's basically two main types of finders. There's zero power finders, and then there's optical finders, which have, which have powers, and they operate like little telescopes. So the zero power finders, basically what you have is typically they're in some sort of uh, black housing. I'm not sure why. They all seem to be black. Usually it's plastic. Um, they, they usually work okay. Um, some of them look like a gun sight. Some of them look like a little optical window that's maybe... Uh, uh, just about an inch or, or a couple centimeters across. And then some of them have a large window. So, so the gun sight ones are typically the ones they send out uh, as part of telescope deals. And then um, as, you, as you go up in price, you can buy ones that have like these larger optical windows. Um, and what happened, the way they work is they have this uh, like a piece of glass basically, and there's an LED system in it and it's red and it projects onto that glass. Sometimes it projects a dot, sometimes it projects a circle or a series of circles, and, and there's a whole bunch of, of different uh, kinds of those. Um, but basically you sight straight through them and you kind of place this red dot or series of circles on the sky. And now you have to go through a process of lining it up with the telescope. But the advantage of those is that it's pretty easy because it's zero power, like you're just looking at, at the sky as is. So um, it's kind of, it's, it's a big field of view and it's just, just what the eye sees naturally. Um, and they work, they work really well. I used to have a Telrad and I used that as my main finder for years. Then we have uh, optical finders and they come in a few different varieties straight through, just like a straight through little telescope. But of course the, the image is going to be like upside down or something like that. Then you have the right angle ones, which are going to reverse the image as well. And then you have uh, what are called correct image ones, or as they used to call them, Amici uh, prism diagonals, and that, that will correctly orient the, the image. Now, these optical finders, they're going to have about a five or maybe six degree field of view. And then um, you have some power on the sky. Basically, it works kind of like half a binocular is kind of is kind of what you're getting there. And of course, with that kind of power, you're kind of able to maybe punch through the light pollution a little bit in the city or, or go a little bit deeper. You're probably going to be able to see like many of the uh, bright deep sky objects you're looking for, like most of the messiers are actually going to be visible in the finder scope. So you can kind of actually find them and then go to the bigger telescope to have the the uh, the main uh, gathering, the, the big light gathering power of, of your main instrument. Um, does that kind of explain the, the different types properly, Shane, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, for sure it does. What about application? How do you use them? Do you like them? Do you use one more than another? So... So I've kind of run through the gamut. So when I started, I used the, the zero powers. And then I, I, for whatever reason, I really wanted to get a right angle correct image optical finder. And University Optics made these beautiful ones. They were brass. And that was like the gold standard. And they were a lot of money. I think, oh man, I want to say like three or $400 in 1995 dollars. So quite a bit of money. And, uh, but they were very good. Now, the downside was they're also very heavy because they're minute of brass, I think, or at least mine was. And I think there were several different types, but uh, for whatever reason, the one I ended up with was, was brass. It looked like it came off a ship or something. And, uh, 
it was painted black, but but there were some brass parts. And if any paint chipped off, you could actually see the brass underneath. So it's brass. Um, and because it was so heavy, I had to um, put it on my Dobsonian really far down. And so I, I didn't care for that, but it gave me a correct image. And so it was easier, especially I was, as I was getting used to reading star charts and going back and forth from the star chart to the telescope, it was sort of easier for me to find and locate objects um, from the little town that I lived in. Uh, but I still also had like the zero power Telrad, um, which is just like one of these circles on, on just the sky uh, through the optical window. And then um, let's see, eventually when I, when I was getting into refractors, I started using some of the, the little zero power sighting tubes. Um, and I went through tons of those. Uh, and that was one of uh, Phil's other questions was, um, you know, are, are some of those better than others? Uh, so basically I think with the, with the larger Dobsonians, um, or even larger, any larger telescopes or telescopes with smaller fields of view, uh, or if you're using a telescope and it's gonna have a smaller field of view, having the finder scope uh, as, as like a smaller uh, ancillary telescope uh, works well. So it depends on your application. So right now, for the most part, what I've been doing in the past several years is, is not using finder scopes at all. Um, when I'm trying to find stuff, I just put in a super low power field eyepiece like a, I don't know, like my 40 Pentax gives uh, three and a half or four degree fields on most of my telescopes are larger. And so I can find, that's like a pr pretty much a finder scope. Like I said, finder scope optical will be about five degrees and my telescope, main telescope can do about four degrees. So um, not that much of a difference. However, for some of my observing, like when I'm observing planets, um, sometimes I'm just trying to get the planet or keep the planet in the field of view. If I accidentally nudge the telescope, uh, it's a real hassle to go back down to the, to the large eyepiece and then back up to a higher power eyepiece. And so that's uh, been a challenge that I've been facing. So that's why I want to get this little optical finder going. Um, and let's see, and it will be a right, a, a correct, a, I guess a right angle. Um, I may or may not use my correct image. Uh, I may see in it. it. To me now at this point, it doesn't matter to me that much. So I might just use the, uh, the tack diagonal um, buying off you as well. So um, what, what about you, Shane? Where, where do you, where do you stand on the, on the finders optical versus zero power versus no finder? Well, you and I had a, a similar start, I think in the hobby. So when I was uh, running my Dubsonians, um, I ran both. I had a, a Telrad mounted on and a seven by 50 right angle, correct image, uh, optical finder. So the, like, especially with my 12 inch light bridge, the field of view was fairly narrow on there. Um, so what I would do this, you know, my method was to start with the Telrad to get the thing pointed, you know, at the right star to begin my star hop or, you know, area of the sky. Uh, from there, I would use the right angle correct image finder to navigate to, you know, the point that I'm actually targeting. And like you mentioned, having the, the, the correct image helped with, um, you know, looking at star charts and understanding where I was in the night sky. It was, it was quite nice for that. Um, and it worked pretty well. You know, the, uh, the right angle made it comfortable to use at the telescope. Uh, the straight throughs give me neck cramps. Um, I just don't like those at all. Um, they might work better for some people or, or, you know, maybe with a different type of uh, configuration if it was higher. But I just found to like kind of crouch down and bend my neck to look straight through uh, was super uncomfortable. So right angle for me was, was a must. 
Um, but then when I kind of moved on from the uh, reflectors and I moved on to refractors, like you mentioned, Chris, the field of view is just wider, you know, with a low power eyepiece, it, you yeah. know, the, the refractor itself really becomes the finder scope uh, with a low power eyepiece. So then I went on to just red dot finders. So I've used um, some of the, you know, more inexpensive red dots. I don't like them because they don't hold alignment well. Um, you know, to me, if yeah. I have to align the red dot finder every time I go out, um, that's just a non-starter for me. I, I don't want that. So the, the less expensive ones I found just didn't, didn't do very well in that situation. Um, but you know, I've used the Bader Sky Surfer three. Uh, I have the Sky Surfer four. Um, Teleview makes a unique one, the Starbeam. It came with my uh, Genesis SDF telescope. And it's a red dot finder, like kind of your standard one where you can just look and it projects a red dot onto the sky. But it also has this mirror so that it, it like, you, you can look at it top down. You don't have to look through it like a sight tube. And the mirror, it, like it's a dialectic uh, electric mirror and it um, reflects the sky. So you can actually see like the stars in the sky as well as the red dot. And it's kind of weird movement because everything is backwards on it. Um, I don't actually care for it, so I don't, I don't use it, but just thought I'd mention that that's a unique one. Um, and then the gun sight ones that you mentioned, um, I have a couple of those. In fact, I, uh, I have one mounted on my Takahashi 76. I like that they're small. Um, you can adjust the reticle, like there's a couple different ones, not that that matters very much. Um, but, uh, you can also adjust the brightness, which is pretty important. Um, so I like using them just to get me into the general area. I don't bother using them uh, with the planets. Again, I find even, even like with a half a degree field of view, I'm able to usually get the planet in the field of view yeah. and I'm good. So it really is more of a deep sky tool for me. Um, and, you know, I, I like them. I like red dots a lot. I, I wouldn't run a telescope without it, to be honest. Um, uh, I have in the past and it usually just frustrates me. So. Yeah, I, I find that I can pretty much shoot from the hip. If I'm using lower powers for deep sky, I can I can pretty much get the refractor um, pretty near to the object or uh, often just get it centered. Um, and that that's not like any sort of magical trick or anything. It's just, you know, you observe for a few decades and you, know, you can kind of, you pick it up eventually. It's just one of those things. Um but uh, yeah, as far as the zero power finders, yeah, eventually I just stopped using those. And I, I found, like you were saying, that there's some, uh, there's some detractions from the, the less costly ones. Like that was one of Phil's questions, like why spend, I guess, in his 100 pounds sterling versus 20 pounds sterling? What, why spend more on a, on a zero power? Um, like you said, the, the alignment can go off on those super easy. And that's really annoying to have to get out to your dark sky site and then start trying to line up uh, a little finder like that. And then as well, I found that uh, sometimes the optical windows on the less expensive ones, well, sometimes they're just too small. And oftentimes, almost almost exclusively with them, I think they're like designed for, for actually using on guns or something. I don't know, because I them, think they yeah. would work better on daytime sky. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, some of them are designed for firearms. And uh, as a result, some people find the reticle too bright. Um, I find, you know, under a dark sky on the lowest setting, it's not too bad. Um, but everybody has different yeah. sensitivity to that, for sure. 
Um, the other thing I'll mention yeah. too, actually, about the Telrad, I, I've also used the Regal Quick Finder. Um, and uh, the Telrad is really nice. Uh, it's like like the construction of it, everything is really nice. The, the thing that I don't like about the Telrads is they do up. That's the first thing to do up on me uh, when I'm out observing when I used to have one. Um, yeah. Just because of a, like the angle of the glass that the, uh, the reticles projected on, um, it's yeah. like a 45 degree angle and it's exposed. So, you know, I bought yeah. a little, like it, it was a dew shield, like you would flip it up and flip it down. And it really made very yeah. little difference. Like, I think you would need a Telrad dew heater to really keep the dew off of them. Um, but I yeah. would say like, depending on the night, it would do over halfway through the night. And then it's like, well, gee, you know, I really depend on this thing to help me observe. And now I, I can't use it. So it, it, it kind of frustrated me. Yeah. Yeah, I found the same, um, especially back east where I'm from. Like, boy, it, it would just eventually do over just like that. Um, and I would just keep a, a wad of like Kleenex in my pocket. And I'd be wiping it and wiping, and, you know, mm-hmm. like it would just be so much water. Like you, it's hard to believe that much water could collect on whatever it is, a, a two inch by two inch piece of glass, or maybe it's smaller than that. Like I'd be like wringing out the, the wad of Kleenex. Um, you know, very quickly. Um, yeah, it was just kind of ridiculous. So yeah, yeah I, I, and you know, I think that that the yeah, I, I think that the red dot fine. I think they can be good. Um, you know, and I think it's like you were saying, maybe some of the some of those better ones, the the Sky Surfer by Bader. Um, I've seen it on yours. Yeah, I mean, those, I think that's probably about the best one. I think that's the, you know, as far as I've seen anyway. Yeah, I I think it like a lot of people say that it's one of the best ones i've uh i actually haven't used it a lot to to really like affirm those claims one thing i will say about it is it's large and i should actually compare the weight of it versus those uh little or the smaller like firearms uh red dots because um the sky surfer is a little weighty uh and i'm i should i should measure it but there's two sky surfers was the three and the four and the three is, uh, yeah. is really good. I bought one for a telescope that I gave to my dad and, um, it holds alignment. It looks a lot like the cheaper plastic ones. Um, but th- yep. this one is just made better. You know, it just, it, it works the way you want it to work. So I, I can definitely recommend it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's cool. That's cool. So, uh, yeah. So I think that answers, uh, Phil's question. So my, I was seeing my class finished up this week and I had uh, uh, for the last class, there was uh, an attendee um, who's, uh, who's, uh, I don't want to, boy, to say that he's getting into astrophotography really kind (laughs) of, that doesn't do him justice, but he's, he's working away on becoming really proficient at astrophotography. That's probably the best way to put it, like on a very high level. And he sent me uh, an image of Messier 51 or M51, which is uh, a galaxy up just below the handle uh, on the Big Dipper, uh, but in the constellation of uh, Canis Venetici. Um, what did you think of that image? I think I shared that with you. <laughs> uh, yeah, to say that this is somebody just starting in astrophotography is a, a great understatement. Well, you know, it may be accurate on their timeline, but uh, I think they found their calling because holy smokes, was that a great image? Like, like that was really, really impressive. Um, if yeah, I really I hope this person so. stays on this astrophotography path because they're awesome at it. 
Yeah. Yeah. They're actually imaging, um, you know, and unfortunately because of the pandemic, we were not able to get together, but uh, um, you know, and I, I, you know, somebody who's, who's, who's this advanced in my opinion, probably isn't getting too much out of my course. Um, and they're really on their own path. Really. They, they are getting out there as far as, uh, as, as going down uh, the rabbit hole and one of the different uh, facets that you can get into with amateur astronomy. And I honestly, somebody like that, there, there's not much that I can teach them. They are so advanced uh, as an imager already, even though they kind of were selling themselves a bit as a beginner in a way I was like, this is, this is the best beginner stuff that I've ever seen. And, and, and quite properly, I think maybe just because um, they are getting going. And I know I was similar when I was getting going in astronomy where I was, I was really, really keen on visual observing and I read all the books I could get. I was observing as much as I could and you, you can get fairly advanced pretty quick. And I think this individual has done that, uh, but sort of on the astro uh, imaging side of things where um, they are spending a lot of time doing it. They are really, really uh, interested in it and they have the knack, right? Like it's like those three things. Uh, this person definitely has um, like the patience and, um, you know, kind of the skill as well. So, so they're, they're producing some pretty amazing content. Um, and yeah, they're, they're only imaging, I think like maybe half a dozen blocks from my house. So they're not even that far from where I live and to see, see them producing it. They actually live towards more towards the core of the city and, uh, and to see the, the type of image that, that they're producing, um, you know, sort of within spitting distance of where I live is, is pretty remarkable, you know, cause you never know, like sometimes you see an image that somebody took somewhere and you wonder exactly well, like, what are their skies like? Well, I know exactly what their skies are like. And that's a, that's a pretty good image. You could see like the spiral pattern and the star forming regions and the night they took, they were, they were taking some of the shots cause it, I think it took them a while to kind of get it together uh, over several nights. But, uh, but you know, like the, the, the conditions here haven't been as good recently, but, but they're out on nights that aren't that great. And, uh, and I think again, when people do that, maybe I'm too picky now that I've been doing this for a long time. Um, but you know, by not being so picky on the nights and by going out anyway, they're, they're learning and, and pushing uh, the limits of, of, uh, of their skills and, and creating new skill sets and doing all this d despite the poor weather we might be having. Hmm. Yeah. That's really impressive. Uh, uh, you know, to be capturing that kind of stuff with, you know, light pollution as a factor too. Um, yeah, I'm really impressed yeah. with this image. Yeah. And they're, they're using a, I think it's 140 millimeter sharp star is what they're using. And uh, yeah. Oh. So, so I, I've encouraged them to enter like some amateur am, uh, astrophotography contests. Like I think they would, uh, they would definitely uh, be, be definitely the type of photo that magazines would be looking to publish. I mean, I, I think they're, they're getting there for oh, sure. Oh yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. I've, I've definitely seen uh, images um in magazines that are that are of that caliber i'll say that definitely they're they're in they're in that that caliber of of uh, proficiency so so that's been cool the other thing that uh that people have been showing up in my in my class with is is this book by terence dickinson and uh now i i think terence dickinson has written some great books on getting started in amateur astronomy and uh we've talked about Night Watch, which I think is kind of like the cornerstone book. Agreed? Yep. Disagreed? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure it is. <laughs> so I, I think, I think Night Watch probably is the absolute best book. Um, 
and typically that's that's what I turn people towards and and a lot of um, I, I guess I don't want to say my course is based on that because I kind of have my own views when it comes to getting people um, giving giving people my experience in amateur astronomy and how they can learn the stars and constellations and what they can see. But uh, one thing I've been getting more and more requests from during the pandemic is even more basic. So I found before, before the pandemic, BP, um, what was happening was that people were coming to my class or, or getting in touch with me and they'd already been doing a bit of astronomy. And then they kind of wanted to, to learn more, take it to the next level or, or really like really get into it. And then um, since the pandemic, I find that anybody that had a real casual interest in astronomy um, wants to get in, you know, to, to learn more, sort of get, get to that other level. Um, and so because of that, I, I've been asked to create some, some courses for, for people in that, uh, in, that, in that situation, which is kind of interesting and exciting for me because I, I kind of thought I was already doing that but then it turns out the feedback was, well, I'm kind of maybe a level higher than what I thought I was uh, targeting. So, so I actually went and bought a copy of uh, this Exploring the Night Sky by Terrence Dickinson. It's called an Equinox Astronomy Guide for Beginners. I'm not sure why it would be Equinox. You can use it all year. Um, that's an astronomy joke, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just use it twice a year on these yeah. days. Um, <laughs> Other, other than that, um, which that's just a joke, but uh, it, it's really a, a very basic book, and uh, it was it was written in 1987. And so my my wife, she actually has a copy of this, but it's the, it's the very first edition from 1987, and she was taking her uh, her guide badges when she was in brownies or something like that. And so uh, so anyway, her mother bought her this book. And then she was able to, to learn enough astronomy to do her, her badges and that. And then she never really looked at the stars again much until she met me and then never wanted to do it anymore. Um, but th this has been updated as of 2016. I think they've made some minor uh, changes and that sort of thing. But uh, the book is broken into, I guess, three different sections. One is called Cosmic Voyage, and it takes you out sort of from the Earth and, and into the... Uh, into the universe beyond um, in, in steps of light seconds to light years to hundreds of thousands of light years. Uh, then it goes into um, planets, alien planets and local planets and um, different things like that, um, which is pretty good. And then it has a section on stargazing. And, and in, I'll tell you, the, one of the best parts about this book is um, it's, it's short and it's small and it's well-written and it's extremely inexpensive. So it was $9.95 Canadian to my door, um, which is really, really inexpensive. I don't know what it would be in the States, but I can't imagine it would be much more expensive even with uh, import. I'm sure it's sold in the States in different places because it has a big thing on the front that says it won this big New York Academy of Science, uh, Children's Science Book Award. But I'm going to say this. And this kind of goes in keeping with many of the astronomy books that, that I recommend. Do not judge the book by the cover. The, the book cover and the big children's science book award-winning stamp make it seem more like it's, it's a children's book, uh, perhaps than it actually is. Like uh, I gave a copy to my nephew and uh, 
he's around 10 and quite uh, science oriented. And he kind of, I think he thought it was a bit, almost a bit much for him. So uh, for, for adults, it is a great starter book. You know, if people are absolutely starting um, from scratch and, and want to learn the night sky, because that third section on learning the night sky is, uh, is extremely well-written. And I think would, would be good to get people going. And then um, kind of once you work through this book, uh, then, then to get night watch. If you're absolutely have no clue what to see in the night sky, this book will, will find you there. Cause when I start my course, I kind of assume everybody knows how to find the big dipper and Orion and Cassiopeia. And then kind of, we go from there, but this book kind of takes you up to that point. So anyway, so there's that. Yeah. Sounds like a good recommendation. Yeah. All right. Um, we've got a couple listener, uh, emails. Maybe, maybe I'll read the first one. The first one is just kind of a comment. And then do you want to read the second one? Yeah, sure. All right. So the first one is from Matt, because I kind of was talking a little bit, I think a little bit more about this one and that's the bright screens. And uh, Matt says, uh, Hey guys, I was listening to episode 101. You were talking uh, about paper star charts in lieu of screens. And he says that he agrees that paper is better, but he wanted to offer uh, a bit of a hack uh, in case listeners just simply uh, do not want to absolutely use uh, paper at, at dark site. So they, they make an offer on uh, how to control your um, iPad and iPhone using these steps. So it's pretty basic. Um, so to get your display as dim and red as possible, you can do this. Now, this is sort of a step further than I think I'd ever gone before. He says it's still bright, but uh, you go to settings, accessibility, accessibility shortcut, check color filters, go back to accessibility and click on display, text size, color filters, turn it on, then choose color tint, turn all hue all the way to zero. Matt adds, now everything in your phone will be red hue in night mode. Click the lock button three times and it will switch between turning night mode on and off. Now all notification, browsers, apps, and everything are all in night mode. Now, like I said before, paper and red flashlight are always best or no light at all. Agreed. So I really like the way he wrote this. I was, mm -hmm. I was very impressed by this. So I'm, I'm in agreement. So basically he's saying, if you're going to use devices, this is how you do it, but still paper is better. So we're on the same page, Matt. Appreciate that. And then he says, um, could just be a great solution for people that, uh, that maybe are, are kind of stuck to using uh, devices for whatever reason. So thanks a lot, Matt. Really appreciate it. Um, I think that's great information for people and uh, I'm in agreement. I have no comments on that. If you don't have any comments on that either, Shane, I'm going to turn it over to you, Reed, uh, Chris's email on the Lunar X. Yeah, sure. And, and maybe before I jump into Chris's, um, there was one other email. I can't remember if I shared it with you, Chris, I think Larry maybe sent it. Um, so I think it was also last week. I was kind of complaining about the RASC double star list that it doesn't have enough information. And yeah. um, Larry corrected me. There's uh, there's like five or six links on the Rask page uh, uh, for the double star uh, resources. And what I clicked on was just a checklist. There's a more detailed uh -oh. list there that does have a lot of that information that I was whining about. So my apologies to the Rask and just uh, I wanted to correct that so everybody was aware um, that there is the right information there in case they are working on the same list. So. Uh, I'll leave that there and then move on to Chris's email. 
so it says, uh, gentlemen, first off, I would like to thank you for your podcast. I've downloaded and listened to every episode at least once, including the episode with Dave Chapman regarding the Lunar X. Uh, thanks, Chris. I just returned to astronomy this spring after roughly a 40-year hiatus. Uh, like your UK correspondent, I am a reflector guy. I just bought a new Orion 130mm ST on an EQ mount. Uh, while it's not as sophisticated as the tax uh, as the tax that you two are using, it is about as big as makes economic sense in my light polluted Toronto backyard. Uh, when I noticed the RASC publications that the Lunar X was going to be visible last Saturday, March 20th, I was very excited to trot out the new scope to give my family an introduction. Uh, I started observing at about uh, 6.05 p.m., and the X was quite prominent, even though it was nowhere near twilight. Uh, by 6.45, my wife and two of my adult children had come out for a look. We ran through the 10-millimeter and 25-millimeter plossal eyepieces, including the two times Barlow. The consensus was that the view... Uh, or sorry, the, the consensus was that the best view was actually about tied between the 10 millimeter alone and the 25 millimeter in the Barlow. At these magnifications, the moon pretty much filled the field of view. Uh, we checked in, uh, we, we checked in on the X off and over the next hour uh, and a half, or yeah, sorry, I'm reading this uh, kind of strange, next hour and a half, but I felt that as the Terminator approached, uh, the increasing amount of lighted area while increasing the size of the X also made it less dramatic due to progressive reductions in contrast between the X and the surrounding dark terrain. Uh, bottom line, though, is that my family were suitably impressed. Incidentally, I had previously checked in on M41 and Canis Major based on your recommendation in a deep dive edition. It is my new favorite open cluster. Uh, I particularly enjoyed the triangle asterisms visible within it. Anyway, thanks again for all your work on the podcast uh, and be assured that your efforts are helping other amateur astronomers to explore and share the night sky. It was always a highlight when Spotify alerts me that a new edition has been posted. So first off, thanks for the kind words, Chris. We really yeah. appreciate that. Nice. Um, what I loved about this though, was like the amount of time that they spent observing the X and saw yeah. it change and evolve. Uh, I thought that was awesome. I've never done that. I, you know, I've looked at the X multiple times, but I can't say I started that early and then and then watched it as the Terminator slowly moved across the surface. Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, that's very cool. Um, and those those little Orion short tubes, uh, those are great. Like I I think that's what the ST means on the one thirty. Um, oh. Yeah, th those are nice, uh, low power, wide field, but also capable of of doing higher power and, and clearly some lunar planetary. Uh, work as well yeah you know and, and great uh, great a great telescope to to kind of get back in and uh, yeah certainly you're going to be able to see quite a bit with uh, with that instrument uh, that would be a nice uh, nice getting getting back into into the hobby uh, instrument and it's great like the whole family was kind of able to go out and, and take a look too and uh, sounds like he's got uh, those those two 10 and 25 uh, millimeter eyepieces in the Barlow yeah, really, really nice little setup. Sounds like and uh, and working really well. Sounds like he's got pretty good horizons there too. If he's able to be observing the moon and then M forty one, he he's got a, a pretty good uh, location there. If that's in his yard, I'm I'm kind of not quite jealous of that. But I, I hope his his yard has uh, has less lights than mine do. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah, good stuff. Well, uh, well, yeah. So thanks so much, Chris. Really appreciate it. And Shane, do you have anything else to to add to this podcast? 
Two quick things. Uh, big sure. shout out to Neil. Uh, he's a new Patreon supporter. Really appreciate uh, oh, yeah. the support there. So thank, thank you very you. much. Um, and, you know, we usually talk about uh, vendors that we deal with uh, when we have positive experiences. Um, so, you know, we've talked about uh, like Flow, FLO. We've talked about uh, Astronomy Plus, All Star, Telescope. Um, yeah. I had a recent uh, interaction with David Astro, which is a, a Canadian astronomy. Oh, yeah, I was wondering, they're, they're pretty data. new. Yeah, I was looking yeah. at some stuff on their website because they carry some of the Lumicon stuff. So I was, I was interested. So I'm happy, happy to hear you had a good experience. So, so what was that experience? Yeah, no, it was just really good. Um, I'm order, or I ordered um, a Bader T2 quick changer okay. um, in anticipation of a uh, Bino viewer that I hope to be receiving. I don't know when, but uh, hopefully not too much longer. Okay. Um, anyway, I was also considering ordering um, uh, the Bader MaxBrite 2 Bino viewers. Um, I just want to say that... Uh, uh, David was awesome. You know, it was very, very easy to deal with. Um, I, you know, I like that he carries some different um, product lines. So uh, just thought I'd mention it really positive uh, would recommend. And you know, what's funny about that is that the, there's, there's a subsection of the RASC, which is the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. And there's the RASC or sorry, the RASD, because there were so many Daves and Davids in, uh, in the RASC, <laughs> they created like this and they even have like a website and like, and then inauguration ceremonies for people. It's kind of a ridiculous thing. But uh, so then I was, I was kind of laughing at the fact that now they even have their own uh, telescope store. <laughs> I did not know about that. Yeah. But that's anyway. Fun. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much. And yeah, that's really cool. And thanks so much to our Patreon sponsors. And, uh, and, and we don't, we don't have any, any uh, telescope store sponsors. So these are kind of just, uh, our, our experiences with these stores. So we're just, uh, just kind of relaying that information uh, to you folks. Yeah, right on. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>